Welcome to Mosaic Church, and thank you for joining us here online. To prepare for today's message, we encourage you to utilize the Mosaic Cincinnati app. There, you can view the message notes, put in prayer requests, and so much more. Enjoy the message. These are really uh, troubled times. There's no TV news service that is not running the story of uh, the problems in Israel and Gaza. Uh, Our military, our own U.S. military is ramping up. Uh, There are ships on their way to the Mediterranean, Uh, all kinds of uh, preparations being made for what might turn into a larger scale war. Uh, I want to talk about Israel this morning, but I want to talk about it uh, about 2,600 years ago. Uh, If you do not know this, and some of you young people may not know this, but uh, Israel uh, is the longest country occupied by a religion, the Jewish religion, in history. Uh, Because uh, the the Jewish uh, people living in Israel goes all the way back to Abraham, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. And so the example we're going to use this morning is about 2,600 years ago, and I'll explain all that in just a moment. So if you have a Bible and want to turn, you can turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 32. Jeremiah, chapter 32. Uh, I'm going to deal with the entire chapter. I'm going to do it very fairly quickly, so we're going to, this is a race to get through this. Um, but I'm going to base my message around a prayer that Jeremiah prayed, which starts with verse 16. So starting in verse 16, down through verse number 20. And here's what it says. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and even to this day in Israel, both in Israel and among mankind, and you have made a name for yourself at this day. Ah, Lord God, nothing is too difficult for you. And it's not too difficult for God to take and reverse whatever curse you felt like you were living under and give you freedom and give you power and give you strength and give you spiritual vitality in your life. It is not impossible. Whatever you carried into this place this morning, it is possible for you to leave it here at this altar and walk out free, set free by the power of God. May the Lord bless his word this morning as we dig into it. I've received many promises from God, and I can tell you sometimes the promises from God are obvious. Sometimes the word of God that comes to us is obvious. Do this, do this, turn here, turn there. But I have also received promises from God that were beyond any amount of comprehension that I might have. They were beyond what I could think. They were beyond what I could ask. They were beyond my realm of possibility. Why does God promise things that are beyond our understanding? Because God has the capacity to understand what is in front of us 
when we cannot even see it. At times, we don't have a field of reference to be able to comprehend God's message because we're not there yet. We'll get there, but we're not there yet. That's why we give ourselves to the study of the Word of God. It's, it's, this, it's this point of reference that we need to always help us keep God's promises in our hearts, not give them up, not let them go, keep God's promises and stand on God's promises even when the situation around us doesn't look good at all. So we turn to Jeremiah to get a lesson. Now prophets, prophets are a strange lot. Yeah, they're, they're sometimes not quite normal because they're living in two worlds, the world that we see and the world that we can't see. So Jeremiah is no exception. He, he's living in two worlds. Here in Jeremiah 32, the time is 587 B.C., 587 years before Christ. In one year, 12 months from now, from the time of this prophecy, Jerusalem and all of Israel will be overrun by the Babylonians. The buildings in Jerusalem will be leveled. The people will either be killed or carried away. The fields will become barren. And for 70 years, Israel will be will be captured by the Babylonians and overrun by the Babylonians and Jerusalem will lay waste. That's one year from this prophecy. So where is Jeremiah right now? Jeremiah is the prophet, but he's in jail. You see, there's this King Zedekiah who's made a pact with the Babylonians thinking that somehow he can be the king of Israel and he make this pact with the Babylonians and he'll somehow get them through it. But he can't do it. He can't do it. And so he turns against Jeremiah because Jeremiah is prophesying about the coming destruction and he throws Jeremiah into the dungeon. He puts him in jail. And it's from the jail then that this passage begins to take place. Now, in all the country of Israel, Jeremiah is the main spokesperson for God. Under God's leading, he has prophesied, he has done his part, and because of what God has told him to do, he's in jail. Outside the jail, he has relatives, and one of his relatives has a piece of property. He no longer wants the piece of property, and so he offers to sell it. But none of his near relatives near him want to buy the piece of property, but Jeremiah is one of his cousins, one of his relatives. So, Jeremiah's relative comes to the jail. They bring Jeremiah up out of the dungeon and they put him in the courtyard of the jail and he and this relative talk and, and, and all of a sudden, God tells Jeremiah, buy this property. Even though Jeremiah knows one year is all about all that's left and Israel's gonna be overrun and Jeremiah will never have use of this piece of property. In fact, before one year's up, Jeremiah is going to be executed. And I, I have to believe that he has some kind of premonition of that in his heart. So we're going to talk about how does this all unfold? What does Jeremiah do? Does he buy the property? Does he not? Let's talk about it. Now, first of all, let's go back up to verse 1 in this chapter. If you have your Bibles open, you can go all the way back to verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord... From, 
from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was imprisoned in the courtyard of the guard, which was at the house of the king of Judah. 587 B.C., Jeremiah is in jail because of his prophetic ministry. And then in verses 3 to 5, it tells us that Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had imprisoned him, he had said, Jeremiah, why are you prophesying like this? You're being negative and we don't have any room for negativity. Here's what I'll do. I'll just throw you in jail. But God, God says, speak Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, Zedekiah, you're doing the wrong thing. You're going to be handed over to the king of Babylon and you'll see the king of Babylon face to face and eye to eye. And when that happens, they'll take you to Babylon and they will put you to death. Jeremiah tells King Zedekiah, if you fight against the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, you will not succeed. These verses tell us why Jeremiah's in prison. He has told Zedekiah the truth, and Zedekiah has rebelled against the truth. Now in verses 6 to 8 of this chapter, Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Han Hanamel. Hanamel's the son of Shalom, who is, who is Jeremiah's uncle. Hanamel's coming to you, and he's going to say, buy, buy, buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. You see, you see what's happening? Jeremiah's giving this prophecy about the destruction of Israel, and then God sends this messenger to him saying, buy this piece of property. And Jeremiah says this in verse number 8, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So he had peace in his heart that he was supposed to do exactly what he's been instructed to do. He's supposed to stretch himself out and buy this piece of property. So what Jeremiah does, he agrees to buy the property, and then he goes through all the processes, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. He goes through all the processes of getting the purchase paid for and the purchase recorded so that posterity will know that this piece of property belongs to the family of Jeremiah. He made everything legal. Now, obviously, Jeremiah is doing this as an object lesson. He's saying these are the most difficult of times. This is the worst time to be buying a piece of real estate investment property. You could not see a better time than this, a worse time than this. This could not be the best time to buy. But God said, do it. So he defies the circumstances and steps out to do it. And then verses 13, 14, and 15 tell us this. It tells us that this is an object lesson. I commanded Baruch in their sight, saying, This is what the Lord of, of armies, the God of Israel, says. Take these deeds, seal these deeds of purchase, put them in an earthenware jar so that they may last a long time. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be purchased in this land. Jeremiah says, We think that destruction's coming, but God has a plan beyond the destruction. He's going to bring us back to the land. So let's seal up this deed. Let's make it legal. Let's make it right. And let's keep it because when 70 years is passed, Israel's coming back. So Jeremiah did all of this. And then we come to verse 16, which we read a moment ago. Jeremiah is human. Did I mention that along the way? Jeremiah is human. 
So when he, when he completed the real estate transaction, his human mind is trying to catch up with what his spiritual mind has caused him to do. And he's saying, have I done the right thing? Okay, God, nothing is too difficult for you. You know what it, you know what you're doing, and 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 and, I, and I'm going to I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to do it without doubting. He knew he had done exactly what God had commanded him to do, but then he says, "Yet you have sent to me, Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses. Although the city has been handed over to the Chaldeans, how could I do this when I know I have no future?" In verses 26 to 36, in these verses, God recounts his reasons for the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah needs to understand that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because Israel has turned against God. Israel has turned away from God. Jerusalem is going to experience the lowest point in the history of Israel of all time because Israel has become idolatrous and has turned against God. May I just pause and give you a warning. Our danger in America is that we turn away from God when we should be turning to God. And that's what Jeremiah is learning. In verse 37 of this chapter, a plan. The plan of God begins to unfold. Because in these verses, verses 37 to 44, God begins to give the rest of the story. He begins to tell what it's all about. God has restoration in mind. Whatever you and I are going through, whatever difficulties we're facing, God has a plan for us to be more than overcomers through Christ Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. Wherever we are on the scale of happiness or gladness or sorrow or pain, God has in mind to bring us back to a place of joy in the Lord. God will raise us up. Wow. He doesn't plan to leave his chosen people in a foreign land. That's what he tells Jeremiah. When the time is right, God's going to reverse the curse that has come upon them. And God's going to bring them back. Verse 37. Verse 37 says he'll gather his people back into Jerusalem and he'll make them dwell in safety. Every one of these verses, my friend, I could give you this morning as a promise to you and to me for what we are now facing in this uncertain day. God promises to bring us back to a place of safety. Verse 38, God will be their God and they will be his people when this whole thing is over. God will still be God and the people of God will still be God's people. And in verse 39, in the meantime, God's going to do a heart job on the people. God's going to change the desires of the people. You see, Israel is being overcome because they have turned against God. But when they get in captivity, they're going to turn back to God. Well, may I just urge you, it's time for us to turn back to God. We don't have to wait until we're under somebody's, till our head's under somebody's foot. We can turn back to God today. We can repent and come running back to him today. And in verse 40, he will make an everlasting covenant with his people. And in the process, he will take away their fears, especially the fear of God. 
Let me tell you, every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, I'm standing on the word divine because every promise in the book is mine. And I learned that when I was five years old as a chorus, and I should have sung it, but I didn't. Every promise in this book is ours. God will fulfill every promise and every covenant that he has made with us. Not one promise will go unfulfilled because our God is a promise keeper. That's what he tells us in verse number 40. And in verse 41, he says, God will rejoice over his people and faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. God says, I'll put the people back in the land and I'll plant them there. Whew. God has greater plans for you than you can even imagine. But right now, the, the situation is you might not be able to see the plans. So between now and the fulfillment of the plan, stand firm. Don't give up. Don't let go. In verse 42, he says that just as sure as all the calamities come, all the promises will also come. I don't know if you've had calamities in your life or not. We've, we've faced a few. we faced a few. But I have found that God's promises come to pass. Now, some of you think the calamities are sure, but the promises of God are not sure. That's backwards. What you see with your eyes may or may not be the truth. But what you hear from God is the truth. God's word is as sure as the very ground that you stand upon. He created it. You can stand on it. The promise is true. Verse 43, what Jeremiah has done in buying this land and sealing the deed and putting it away for future generations is a precursor that will, uh, to what will happen in Jerusalem in the future. Seventy years will go by before the children of Israel come back, before Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and all these folks begin to come back to the land. The walls will be rebuilt. The temple will re be rebuilt. That, it'll be 70 years down the road. There will be people born like Nehemiah, born in captivity. That will, that, who, who, Nehemiah never seen Jerusalem until he came from Babylon the first time to, to rebuild the walls. But God put it in his heart. God put it in his heart to keep his promise to go back and to rebuild the city. And so the property that Jeremiah bought would have been given to his heirs because he was faithful to do what God said. Now look at God's word. And in this verse, it says, I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. God has a plan for you, just like he had a plan for the people of God. In, 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 in 586 BC, God has a plan. He will bring back what the locust has eaten. He will bring back what the, what the, the, the storms of life has, have destroyed. God has a promise for you. Let's turn to the application part of this message this morning. I don't have to give you a news report this morning. We are living in a very precarious, difficult time. People are calling good evil and evil good. The understanding is just not there. But you and I are the people who hear and believe the promises of God. So my urgent message to you this morning is, stand on the word. Whatever curse you feel like you're living under, 
stand on the word of God because he is in the process of reversing that curse. You often hear Pastor Joe quote John Maxwell. He's, he's written 40 or 50 books. I don't know. The first 20 I read. The next 20 sounded like the first 20, so I didn't read many of those. But <laughs> here's what Maxwell says. He says, you cannot bless what God has cursed, but you cannot curse what God has blessed. Oh. Sometimes you just have to say to the devil, devil, you can try to curse me, but I have news for you. I am living under the blessing of God. Try as you might, devil. You cannot reverse what God has declared. And God has declared blessings over my life because I stand on the word of God. Wow. Second application. I've come this morning to give you a reminder. Jeremiah teaches us that God's principles still work even in difficult times. The picture you saw, I almost cried. I mean, I had, a little, I had to choke a little bit coming up because the picture you saw was in the very country where Joe was born. And that language that you heard being spoken on that film is the language that I preach in when I go out there. I do it with a Southern drawl, but they understand it. There's a city out in the Philippines called Roja City. It's, it's like our second home. We're there a lot. Our dearest of friends pastored the church there. We were on the beach one time and they pointed down the street to this big house. See that big house? Yeah, that, well, the lady in our church lives there. And then they told her story. This lady had been, uh, she had two sons, but she had been abandoned by her husband when her sons were small. Now in the Philippines, there's no divorce. So when the husband leaves, the wife cannot divorce and remarry. It doesn't happen that way out there. And there's not much in the way of welfare. So this lady had two sons, her husband gone. He was the breadwinner. He left, went, ran off to another island with another woman and left her alone. And she, she was doing her best. She's just scraping food together, just trying her best to keep her family going. When she came to church one Sunday morning and received a word from her pastor, Pastor Ray, our dear friend. And that word was simple. It just said, whatever's in your house, whatever you have, whatever talent you have, God will use your talent. God will use what's in your house to bring you through whatever you're going through. And the lady went home and said, what's in my house? And she said, well, I have a few peanuts. And not only that, she had one of the best recipes for roasting peanuts. Filipinos like peanuts with garlic roasted in them. Doesn't fit the palate of Americans, but it fits out there. And she had a great recipe for that. So she took what peanuts she had and she roasted them in her unique way. She bagged them in little plastic bags and scotch taped them and put them on a, a bamboo tray and sent her sons down to sell them for what, what's the equivalent of two cents in American money, two cents a bag. And they went and they came back. They had sold them all. The next day, she used some of the money to buy more peanuts. She roasted them and put them in bags. Her, her sons helped her. And they went and the word had gotten out on the 
to all the market where they were and the people were rushing and they bought them all. And the next day they made more and, and then the next day more and then the next day more. Then they had to find a bigger house with a bigger kitchen to make more and they rented a bigger place and, and had one stove and then two stoves and they were making all they could. And, and, then, and then the business began to take off and she had to rent a, a business building where she could put in some commercial ovens to... you. <laughs> And guess what? When her ex-husband heard of her success in selling peanuts that were now being shipped all the way to Japan, he came home. <laughs> Isn't that something how people do that? <laughs> but God took this woman who was at wit's end, who looked like her life was over with not enough food to feed her children and gave her just a simple idea. And that idea, oh, by the way, she tied on everything she earned from even before she had anything. And God began to give her the desires of her heart. I'm telling you, the promises of God work when you're broke. The promises of God work when your back's against the wall. The promises of God work when it looks like everything has turned against you. Stand on the promises. That's why if next Sunday you bring one day's wages in and do one day to feed the world, and Doris and I plan it, we won't be here next Sunday. We'll be out preaching in Missouri in a little town called Advance. I know the words advance, but in Missouri, it's Advance. We're going to be there <laughs> preaching next Sunday. But we're going to participate and you may feel like, I cannot do this. Just take a step of faith. Put God's principles to work. You can. As sure as God came to Jeremiah, God will come to us. Our reaction during difficult times may be to hide, to recoil, to go back, to get in a place of seclusion. But God says, don't do that. Step out. Invest. Do it. As though, as though you knew the end of the story, even when you don't. Because you know the writer of the story, even when you don't know the end of it. And why do we do that? Because we're living under the new covenant that God has given us. His word, God, listen, listen to me, God's word is truer than anything that comes over CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, uh, even Fox. <laughs> CNN, God's word is truer than anything that you hear over the radio or read over the television. God's word is truer. This was demonstrated to us back in 2009. I was back out in the Philippines. Doris and I were preaching a, the, their general council convention that they have every three years. We were in the city of Cebu, but we were staying uh, across the bridge in a, on an island called Mactan. Mactan is the island where Fernando Magellan was killed by a Filipino uh, named Lapu-Lapu. And uh, the, it's unique, but the way Filipinos do it, there, there's a big, a big uh, monument to Magellan, and then there's a big, Lapu, big monument to the guy who killed him. <laughs> they, they cover their bases, folks. <laughs> Our driver, and they gave us a, a driver during this convention to get us back and forth to the hotel across the bridge and all that. And So our driver was a man named Ellie. 
Ellie had the most beautiful black Nissan pickup you've ever seen in your life. It was shined to the hilt. Wheels, bumpers, inside immaculate, clean. Ellie was one of those guys that just bounced out of his truck, bounced up the door to the hotel, bounced in the room, got us and bounced back out and bounced back. I mean, he was, he was just full of the energy that God gave him. He was given to us to drive because the, the other speaker at the convention didn't speak the local language. And so he drove us because he couldn't speak English yet, at least not very well, he said. So, so we're in the truck, we're going into traffic, and I say, Ellie, tell, tell me your story, Ellie. And here's Ellie's story. He said, my dad was in the army and he was gone almost all of my growing up years. He said, so I got into a lot of trouble. When it came time to go to high school, I dropped out. I just couldn't find a way to go. I ran the streets. I did what I, what I wanted to do. When I got to be about 18, he said, I got married. And we were scraping by. We had a child, and then we were scraping by. But somebody invited me to a church, to an Assemblies of God church out there in the Philippines. Somebody invited me to church, and I, I, I went, and I heard this preacher preach, and something came over me, and he said, I gave my heart to Jesus. He said, I needed a job. So I prayed, God, give me a job. So I, I went down to this factory where they made big clay pots like, like people put out on their porches and put plants in. He said, I applied for a job and they gave me a job sweeping up in the factory where those clay pots were made. A job as a janitor. And he said, he said, I just, I just think, I just thought that was from God. So I just put everything I had into that job. And so he's sweeping. These plants that were being made were shipped. They, they had a contract with Home Depot. So they would ship them from Cebu City, Philippines to the, to the United States and sell them at Home Depot. Big things. And here he was going around the plant, encouraging people. He had two pair of pants, one old raggedy pair that he worked in and one pair that was a little better that he went to church in. He had two shirts, one that he worked in and one that he went to church in. That's all he had. He did not have a pair of closed-toe shoes. All he had was slippers, what you call flip-flops. All he had. And yet he had the joy of the Lord, and he swept that plant. He'd go, and he'd encourage people sweeping the plant. And finally, finally, they, there, there needed to be some change in the plant, and the the owner of the plant came to Ellie and said, Ellie, I noticed the way you work and I noticed the spirit that you have. He said, he said, I've got to make some changes and I'm going to promote you. And one promotion led to another and Ellie became the manager of the plant. He had learned so quickly. They went on and, the, and they, the sales grew. Home Depot was selling thousands of these pots. They were bringing them all the way, selling them here in America. And one day the owner of the plant came. Now, all this time, Ellie had been faithful to God, to his church, the same church he got saved in. God was blessing him because he was faithful, even though he didn't know the end from the beginning as far as what, what turn his life would take. So his manager called him, as the owner of the plant called him in one day and said, Ellie, I have a deal for you. He said, you're the only man that I can trust this with, but I'm going to trust you. He said, I'm going to go to the United States where I can sell more plants 
more, more planters. So I need to leave someone here, but not just anybody. I need to, need to leave someone who's vested in the company. So Ellie, here's my offer. You stay here and run the company for half. The company will be yours. And I'll go to the States and take care of our business over there. And when Nellie told me that story, tears came to my eyes. Here's a guy that when he came to work, he didn't even have a pair of shoes. He didn't have anything except he had the joy of the Lord in his heart and in the promise of God in his heart. He didn't get where he got because of some strange thing. He just gave it all he had. He was just a good Christian. He just lived like God wanted him to live. But God had something in store that he could not see. He could have begrudged sweeping the floor. He could have said, I'm better than that. But he didn't do it. He just took his current situation and thanked God for the, pot, for the opportunity. And he gave God everything he could give. His heart, his life, his soul. I felt like in that black Nissan pickup I was riding with royalty. Yeah, he didn't look royal. He didn't have a whole lot better clothes then than, because that wasn't important to him. <laughs> he was a working man. But I felt like I was in the presence of someone who knew something more about God than I, did, than I had discovered in all these years of serving him and preaching the gospel. He knew how to trust him in the worst of circumstances because he knew somehow God would bring him through. Would you bow your heads, please? Thank you so much for joining us for today's message. We look forward to having you back next week.